We'll now be reading from Matthew 9, 35 to 38, which is printed on the insert in your bulletin. Listen now to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, this has been a challenging week for many of us. It's been a trying time for our culture. It's been a time when we have seen tragedy and brokenness and hurt and when we have seen grace and mercy and forgiveness. It's been a time when we have seen people pitted against one another and acts of hatred and anger. And Lord, it terrifies us. It terrifies us at least perhaps because we know that deep within us, all of us are capable of these kinds of things, that perhaps we would do them if we dared. We don't know what to do with that, Lord. We don't know how to respond to that. Lord, it's been a challenging week for many of us personally. Challenging because we've seen perhaps new highs that we now are afraid we'll never see again. Great things have happened and we wonder, have we hit our climax and now are going down the other side of the roller coaster? Or challenging because we face things that we don't know the answers to. We wonder, how will we get through this new thing? Or because we feel alone or because we feel smothered and we don't know what to do with that. And Lord, it's challenging because as different as our paths have been and as varied our conditions are today, whether we come here excited or whether we come here uh, apathetic, whether we have been coming into church for as many Sundays as we can remember, or whether we're even surprised that we're here today because we don't know why we would even come to church. What's true for all of us, Lord, regardless of our posture, regardless of our position, is that we are a mess and our world is a mess. And we are in need of you more than we know and in every moment of our day. And so would you meet us there in that mess? Would you show us, as your word tells us, that you care about our mess and that you have cared for our mess and that what we hear read from your word and taught from your word today is not merely good ideas or the notions of men or the writings of an ancient text, but that there is a God and that he is speaking to us, and that we can listen if we would have ears to hear. So give us those ears, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.
in Bacharach, Germany, then there's a castle called the Stalic Castle. It was built in the 12th century. Um, and uh, for many centuries after that, it was the home to lords and regents and archbishops and counts. And it was overtaken during the Thirty Years' War in the 1600s. And so by the late 1600s, it was in ruin. In the 20th century, prior to World War I, it was partially restored, um, but never completed because of the war, and now it sits in that half-restored state. Uh, and it's, at least as of almost 20 years ago when I visited it, it was a, a hostel, a youth hostel. You can go and throw out your sleeping bag and stay overnight in the Stalic Castle uh, and do it cheaply because it's a place that's filled with graffiti and trash and decay and these fetid pools in dark corners and smells. And it's amazing to see this place that was built for royalty and glory and now is in broken ruin. Keep that picture in mind and jump to Memphis, Tennessee. In 2006, our denomination had our General Assembly here in Memphis at the Convention Center downtown, and I came down to, to Memphis for, for the first time. I had never visited Memphis before then. Actually, that's not true, but I, I, I had only visited briefly before then. I didn't know the city, um, and I rode down from St. Louis with a friend, and he dropped me off at the Convention Center and headed on to his hotel. And as, but as we crossed the Mississippi River, and I saw the downtown of Memphis, and I thought, this is a pretty beautiful city. This riverfront is fantastic. And we came into that downtown area where, you know, the trolley's down there, and we had to wait for it to cross, and we thought, how quaint this is. And, uh, you know I, know, I know now Memphis has a little bit of a love-hate relationship with the trolley, but I didn't know then. I thought it was a, a beautiful kind of a streetcar thing, Right. And, um, and so there I was at the convention center. It's late afternoon. It's about 6 o'clock, 6.30. And uh, I was staying at the University of Memphis. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to catch the bus to the university. And so I headed out from the convention center, walking toward a bus stop. And I thought, so I got to the first one. No bus came for a few minutes. But there I was, and I thought, well, I know that the road I'm on is just right down the street. If I keep walking in that direction, eventually... I'll get there. So up, up Poplar Avenue I head, right? Um, and I, I got about four blocks down the way, and this guy comes over to me, and he says, hey, man, you don't want to come this way. And I said, okay. And I'm thinking, this, this guy's just coming out of the shadows, and he, you know, he doesn't look like he's got any place to stay, and does he know what he's talking about, or is he just trying to pull some sort of scam on me? So I just said, okay, thanks. And I kept walking, and some other guy right, right across the street said, yeah, man, you want, to, you want to listen to him. You don't want to keep coming this way. And these guys kind of came alongside me, these, these homeless fellows, and they said, if you go about two more blocks, then you, you might not make it out of here with what you've got on your back, right? And they helped me find my way back to a bus station that was actually still working, and I took the bus down to the university without incident. But it struck me again how beautiful and broken it all is at once, isn't it? Memphis is a beautiful city, and it's a broken city. And Charleston, South Carolina is a beautiful city and a broken city. 
And we live in a world that has these two married together, beauty and brokenness, glory and ruin together. And that's the cry of this text from Matthew as well, that there is beauty and brokenness, glory and ruin mixed up together, and Jesus looks at this, at this world and at these people with that on his heart. And yet we also know that he came into this world to undo the brokenness and to take away the harassment and to bring shepherding into their lives that they could never imagine. And so I just want to ask you three questions that come out of this text, that arise out of this text today. And the first one is this. What is your view of the gospel? What is your view of the gospel? Jesus came to people in need, people like me and people like you. And what he brought to them to meet that need was the gospel. What is the gospel that's presented here in this text? It is the good news about the kingdom of God. And that took form when Jesus was demonstrating its power in things like healing and in things like restoration and in things like resurrection. But those were, we have to be very careful to understand this, those were symptoms, if you will. Those were effects of the kingdom come, not the thing itself. The kingdom is Jesus coming to make all things new, to restore what he had made beautiful. And that includes healing, doesn't it? And that includes reconciliation. And that includes taking brothers who are opposed to one another and making them side by side once more. So here's the question. What is your view of the gospel? Do you have it in your head that the one thing people need above all else is the gospel. No matter what you see about their lives, no matter what you understand about who they are or who they aren't, that they must have the gospel. Do you understand that about yourself? That the thing that you need above all else is not a bigger paycheck, is not another vacation, is not a better triathlon time. That the thing that you need fundamentally is the gospel. Do you know and do you understand that God crashed into this world, that he walked among us, that he lived and died in our place, and that he has set in motion the renewal of all, uh, renewal of all creation, and that that will make all things new as the restoration and the healing of that kingdom? That is the gospel. If you look on the front of your bulletin, you'll see a, a reflection quote from a classmate of mine uh, from seminary, Dane Ortland. Dane says, what is the gospel? Not Ann Landers, but the front page. Why? It's not advice, but news. It's not telling us what to do, but what has already been done. And that's powerful for us because we often think of the Bible and we think of the gospel and we think of what Christianity is about as fundamentally a set of principles of what to do or how to be or, or what, what's next. 
But what, what the gospel is and what Jesus came to do at a particular moment in history was to establish a reality that would reverberate throughout the rest of history. We, we get this mixed up sometimes, I think, in the church. A, a few years ago, some friends of mine had a conversation I just kind of watched in their midst where one of them said, hey, I think that our church should sh- start a used car dealership. And, uh, and the other one kind of taking the bait right on purpose said, oh, yeah, well, why do you think that, Brian? And, uh, and he said, well, you know, um, the world needs good used cars and needs car salesmen with integrity, right? And we've got this, all this empty space that's, you know, these lots that sit vacant on Sunday, except for Sunday mornings. We could use it for that, right? And it could maybe be something that the deacons could do, and it could be a mercy ministry, right, to the, to the people around us. Well, that's a little bit of a ridiculous example, isn't it? But it illustrates the point that a lot of times, don't we do that? Don't we think, okay, this is a good idea, and so maybe the church should do it. This is something that would benefit people. And so why, aren't, why, aren't we, why don't we have a ministry for that? But often, the things we want to busy ourselves with in the church are, are these amazing things. Whether, it, whether it's something bizarre like a, a, a car dealership or something a little bit more normal, whether it's a program or whether it's a, a class, you know, some slick prepackaged material that impresses us with video and color worksheets and shrink-wrapped stuff, and and the gospel just might not be present there. They might be entirely good programs, entirely good lessons, entirely good, well-meaning things, but to the degree that these distract us from focusing on and remembering how miraculous our salvation is in the gospel— then we need to avoid them as a church. Not to say that as believers we shouldn't engage in those. Believers do need to be good used car salesmen, and they do need to be good other things. What you do tomorrow is a very good gospel-oriented thing for your life. But the church is about the gospel. It's not about your vocation. It's not about my career. It's not about our, our hobbies or the pet interests that we have. Because when we begin to forget that, then the gospel gets distorted. And we won't see a field that is white under harvest anymore. It's quite possible that we might see a culture war, right? Because our pet issues have taken the place of the most fundamental things, and we've begun to fight. And we've begun to exclude others because they don't think like we do or they don't value the same ministries that, that we do or they, in some other way, are not like us. You won't have compassion and weep over people who are harassed and helpless when you see them as your enemy. Ministry then becomes more about winning arguments than about seeing souls restored to Christ. And you won't have an idea about what's taking place in Matthew 9 
as Jesus looks at people and he has compassion on them, seeing them for what they are, harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. So the next question that comes out of this text, the first question is what is the gospel? The next question is what is your view of people? What is your view of people? How did Jesus see people when he looked at them? See again in verse 36, harassed and helpless. They were sinners and they were sinned against, weren't they? They were created in the image of God and thus they were made for dignity and yet, like so many of us, they lived so much of their lives in shame. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's a lot of my life. Is that a lot of your life? Do you feel harassed and helpless at times? Do you feel the weight of your sin and also the oppression of being sinned against and the pain and the helplessness of that? Who they are is not who they were meant to be. Who we are is not who we were meant to be. If we look back to Genesis 2 and God's description of creation and of humanity, everything is good, everything is right, and how are Adam and Eve described? In Genesis 2, verse 25, he says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Think of that. When was the last time you were naked and not ashamed? Even if you were all by yourself in the bathroom and you caught a glimpse of yourself in the mirror, was there something you didn't like? But these people were naked and not ashamed. And that nakedness was not just merely a physical nakedness. Let's not... Must not be quite that earthy, right? They were vulnerable. They could be honest with each other. They didn't have to qualify or hedge their words. They could say the truth and not be ashamed of it. Does that seem as foreign to you as it does to me? Well, that's because when sin entered the world in chapter 3, the first thing that Adam and Eve did was they covered up their nakedness, right? They were hiding. And when God said, why are you hiding? Then they said, because we're naked. And suddenly they had something that they weren't proud of, that they were ashamed of. Why? Because they knew brokenness. They knew sin. But the amazing wonder of the gospel is that Christ has come to undo shame and to restore dignity. Who are we in Christ? We are sons and daughters of God the Father and co-heirs with Jesus. That is a huge change of status, isn't it? We've gone from being enemies with God. You know that, right? Those who are not believers are called by Scripture enemies of God. Not just ignorant, not just blind, enemies. Such were we. So was I. But I went from being an enemy of God to being one that he called his son and an heir. And so did you if you've believed in him. How did that happen? Well, it wasn't because of me. Just like when Adam and Eve, you know, they saw their nakedness, they tried to stitch fig leaves together. Have you ever tried to sew 
leaves together, maybe when you were a kid, doesn't last very long, does it? That's not a very effective way to make clothing. And so God came, and he slaughtered one of his own creation to sacrifice that in order to make them coverings for their shame. Isn't that beautiful? It cost him. It cost him to cover up their shame. And it cost him to cover up our shame. But that was the gospel. And a particular view of people that we see in this text is that God's view of his children is clear. In Hebrews 2.11, he, being Jesus, is not ashamed to call us brothers. I may be ashamed of me, but Jesus is not. Jesus is not ashamed of you. He loves you. He calls you his brother. And his view of the, the unredeemed, those of you perhaps in this room who don't believe yet that what I'm saying could possibly be true, his view of them is equally clear. Even though that, that relationship is described as enemies, it's not a hostile relationship. He has compassion on the unredeemed because he sees them as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So what we can do is to look at people who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd and we can say to them, it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. I'm speaking to all of you here who are harassed and helpless just like I am. Listen to me. It doesn't have to be this way. We get to participate in restoring castles that are in ruin and disrepair. We get to be a part of bringing those who are royalty into the realization of their inheritance. Do you value those people? Do you value those around you? Your spouse, your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends? Do you value the people that you know that don't believe in Jesus? Do they feel valued by you? This is a hard challenge, right? Go home and ask your spouse, do the people around me feel valued? Because the, the gospel shows, the scripture shows that I should have that kind of view of people. I value them. I see them as precious. Do people feel honored when they're around me? Ask somebody that, if you're ready for the challenge of that answer as it might come. It's a, that's a scary thought too, isn't it? But what is your view of people? And the last question from our text today is, what is your view of God? What is your view of the gospel? What is your view of people? And now, what is your view of God? Because in verse 37 and 38, what is Jesus called in this passage? the Lord of the harvest. Do you understand him to be that way? That there's a harvest. This is one of those many great metaphors of, of the New Testament, right? That It's not that, we, that Jesus was literally a farmer, right? 
just as when he called the disciples to be fishers of men, he didn't intend for them to take hooks, right, and see how many, how many people he could snag, right? You can just sort of see that. I had a cousin who at, at the lake one summer, I think he popped four different rafts with his fly rod because he was, he was, he was out, out to figure this thing out, right? And I, that's a, that's a, a harsh picture of fishers of men, right? Let's, let's see how many people I can snag with that fly rod, right? No. That's a metaphor, of course, right? The, the harvest is, of course, also a metaphor. But there it is. There is a field white unto harvest. And you don't have to drive very far from Grace Community Church to see something like that. In just a few weeks, in just a few weeks, the cotton will be out that way. And you can drive by and you will see the majesty of that. A field white unto harvest. But the workers are few. Do you understand God to be the Lord of the harvest? That he has a harvest that exists. And that he has called us alongside him for the privilege of participating in reaping that harvest. And that he is committed to the entire process. It's not just that he says, all right, I'm going to go into town and meet up with the guys. And when I come back, I want to see the back 40 pretty much done. All right? Now he's there in the field with the harvesters. He is here among us today, present with us. Remember earlier in the service, we prayed that he would be that way, that he would come and join with us because this is the place where he intends to reap his harvest the most. The Bible has told us that. The place where people ordinarily will come to confront with Jesus and get to know how he has loved them in this gospel way, how he has dignified them in this particular view of people is here in the church. That's his harvest. And he's called you, believers, to the privilege of participating in that. Do you have that kind of confidence about the ministry of the church? Do you have a particular view of the way that God might work here in Grace Community Church? I kind of have a feeling that you probably do because as we've been coming around the church now for almost a year, I've seen that there's a culture here that's maybe a little bit more inclined toward that than a lot of churches are. A little bit more friendly to people that maybe are not just, just like me. A little bit more open and hospitable to believers and unbelievers alike. Maybe those who have been stung by the church and they're not sure whether they really can come back and they can find a safe place here. I want to encourage you, church, that you have, you have a culture that is friendlier like that than a lot of churches. And that's a harsh thing to say about other churches, and it's a good thing to say about you. But I also want to challenge you not to lose sight of that as something that is vital to what God has created this body to be and do. Because he is the Lord of this harvest. And we need to have a vision and a, and a hope for what he might do in our midst And sometimes that may take a long time. But we should trust that God's at work. I know a man named Paul. And Paul um, uh, was converted to Christianity in college. And his father was a staunch unbeliever. And for 17 years, Paul spoke with his father about the gospel. Because Paul had a particular view of the gospel, 
And he had a particular view of his father, and he longed to see his father come, encounter with it, come into encountering with the gospel that he believed in. Because he knew that through his particular view of God, that God wanted that too. That God longed for that too. And 17 years, Paul would reach out to his dad, and every time they would get to a certain point, as I recall, that point was when his father would have to admit that he was desperate and in need of some help outside of himself. And I can understand how that would be a point that it would be easy to get stuck at, can't you? We don't like to admit that we're desperate in need of help beyond ourselves, do we? And so Paul's father didn't either. But after 17 years, about a week before he died, then his father finally got past that point, realized his helplessness, and embraced the gospel, that there was restoration for him, that he no longer had to be an enemy of God, but could now be called a son and an heir. And Paul confessed to me not long after that that he had almost given up hope. Because when you're going something, at something like that for 17 years, it's easy to give up hope, isn't it? But think about that. Only Jesus makes that happen. There's no way that a guy is that set in his ways for that long and then suddenly changes his mind? It doesn't happen, does it? You know better than that. I know better than that too. But Jesus does make it happen. So we can have confidence in him because he's the Lord of the harvest. Now just down the road from the Stalic Castle in Germany is the uh, Salzburg Fortress in Salzburg, Austria. And this is a picture of the other side of the coin, so to speak, because whereas uh, the uh, castle in Bacharach, Germany, was never fully restored, the castle in Salzburg was never allowed to fall to ruin and has been maintained for centuries. And you can go there, and you can visit, and you can sit in rooms that once held kings and courts And you can listen, as I did, to chamber orchestras play beautiful, heavenly music. And you can get a picture, a real taste of what it would be like to be royalty entertained in court by uh, the, the beauty and majesty of all that their kingdom afforded them. It's an amazing picture, it's a beautiful castle. And this is what God has called us to envision for his church. That there is restoration and newness and wholeness where there is brokenness. That he is taking this place and this world and the things that we love in spite of their brokenness and he's, he's restoring them. And he's taking our hearts and our souls, the broken things that we are and the sinful things that we are, and the bruised creatures that we are from being sinned against by others. And he is bringing healing. God brings about beautiful music in restored castles. And he invites you to join him in that because he's the Lord of the harvest and the fields are white. Would you pray with me that that would be our vision? Let's pray. Father, we long to be restored and renewed in the way that Jesus spoke of here in 
Matthew 9, in the way that he enacted through the gospel that we, that we believe, and yet, Lord, we need your help in our unbelief. Lord, sometimes this sounds too good to be true. Sometimes in the face of bro- the brokenness that's still in this world, it seems too far off to be of use. But it is of use. And it is true. So would you help us to believe that all the more? For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.